You're listening to another New Hope Chapel, New Hope podcast. Chapel podcast. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, pastor of New Hope Chapel. Thanks so much for listening. Today you'll be hearing from Julie Coleman, an author and member of our teaching team, as she continues our series called The Master. Well, good morning. We're continuing in our series this morning on um, the book of the Gospel of John, and um, it's the Master series. And we've had some wonderful messages already. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the master of living water. Um, and it's Jesus' conversation with the woman of Samaria, the woman at the well. You probably have, uh, remember her um, being referred to as. Well, I want to start this morning by bringing back an old poem that you probably remember from your high school days, The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Um, I was raised in the 70s. We didn't do a lot of good stuff like this, so I never really covered it in school, one of the many ways my education lacked. But um, I did have interest in reading it recently. And um, I don't know if you remember the story, but there's this bridegroom, and he's on his way to his wedding. And this old seaman stops him and wants to tell him the story of this great voyage that he's had. So he starts to narrate the story, um, and it begins with his ship departing, and they had good fortune at the beginning, and everything was going well. But then the ship is driven by a storm and, and goes south, and eventually gets, reaches Antarctica, where they're um, surrounded by ice and, and treachery and um, very bad situation. But then an albatross, big bird, appears, and he leads them out of the Antarctic. Um, but even while the the people on the boat are praising this albatross as this messenger that's, that's brought them from calamity into hope again. Um, apparently the mariner takes out his crossbow and shoots the bird dead. Can't figure that one, but there it is. So the crew gets very angry, of course, because he's just shot this great omen, and, you know, that's a terrible thing, and now bad things are going to happen. Um, uh, but then the sailors kind of change their minds because as they leave Antarctica, they're off in warmer waters and things look good. And so they start to relax a little bit. But then they realize their grave mistake because then um, the wrath of the spirits goes against the boat and the boat gets driven into a place where they are becalmed. Um, and so they are dead in the water, basically. And this is where this famous quote comes from. It's a little trivia game you can play someday that you know this fact now. Day after day, day after day, we stuck, nor breath, nor motion, as idle as a painted ship upon a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. That's where that quote's from. I'm sure it's familiar to you. You know, having water is not a nice-to-have thing. It's a necessity to life. Um, without it, you die. But it has to be the right kind of water. Um, although the, ship, the people on the ship can see nothing but water as far as the eye can see in any direction, it does them no good because it's not the kind of water that's going to bring them or sustain their life. So every soul on board except for one, the mariner, the ancient mariner, dies from thirst. Um, while surrounded by water. Well, today's passage in our series, The Master of Living Water, is a conversation between Jesus and a woman from Samaria. He offers her living water. Um, 
What's he talking about? Well, the conversation's a little hard to follow. It's one of those conversations, every time I read it and teach it, I come up with something a little different because it takes these twists and turns. And uh, it's in John chapter 4, if you've got your Bible and you want to follow. It seems like sometimes they're switching subjects, but I think not really. So we're going to look at the context, both the historical context and and the textual context, to figure out what it all meant. And then we're going to take those truths that we can get from that thing that happened at that time and transport them over to the 21st century and see how that should apply to our lives today. So that's where we're going to start. So we're going to start by reading John chapter 4, starting at verse 3. And let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, for this fascinating conversation. We thank you what you offered and the fact that you offer it to us today, living water. Help us, God, to uh, figure out this conversation. Lord, don't let me stand in the way of your truth. Just let me be a, a mouthpiece to what you would have people hear and convict hearts. That's your job. <laughs> In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so reading from John chapter 4. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came, by the way, sixth hour means about noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, asked me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Well, John adds that little explanation at the end there. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Well, why? Well, I want to give you just a little brief history of the, the, uh, between the two peoples, the Jews and the Samaritans, because they had distant relations, but um, some things are interesting about what happened. God brought the people into the promised land, and they were um, a, a united kingdom for quite some time. And then, uh, due to Solomon's sin, God split the kingdom into two. And uh, it was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had ten tribes. The southern kingdom had uh, two. And so they were there for a while, but the northern kingdom was very, very corrupt, and they were really into worshiping idols. Every one of their kings was evil. It was a very bad thing. And God put up with it for so long. And then in 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came in and conquered the northern kingdom. Now, God spared the southern kingdom from that, but the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians were known for something that they would do. When they conquered a land, they would resettle the land with people from other conquered nations into that territory. So they mixed things up a little bit. Um, And so, of course, after a while, the people intermarried, the the Jews that were uh, in Samaria, and then um, they ended up becoming a mixed race, and they started to be called by their region where they lived, Samaria. Well, the southern kingdom wasn't much better. They had a few good kings, and they they worshipped God some, but in the end, they just became just as corrupt as the northern kingdom. And 136 years later, now the Babylonian Empire came in and took over um, not only the Assyrian land, but it also spread into the rest of uh, Israel as well, um, the the southern kingdom, Judah. And um, so they were taken off, and most of people were brought into exile over toward the Babylonia part of things. 
Well, the Lord allowed a remnant of the people to come back um, some decades later. And um, they, had, they were there to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And they were there also to rebuild the temple. Um, and you'll probably remember the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about that whole rebuilding thing. But the Samaritans, they were already there. And so when the remnant came back, they offered to help the Jews do this thing. But the Jews had remained racially pure and had remained religiously pure, and they wanted nothing to do with those half-breeds, the Samaritans. And so they rejected their offers of help. And the Samaritans, being such good neighbors, hired thugs to go in and try to frustrate all of their efforts in building this temple and building the wall. And there was this a lot of animosity between the two peoples. Well, that animosity continued even into after the Babylonians were finished. Now the Roman Empire came and took over, which was much larger than the other empires. Didn't know you were going to get all this history lesson, did you? Um, But anyway, the Roman Empire came in and took over, and they united um, Israel um, into one big country. Um, It was an uneasy union because we're talking about the Samaritans and the Jews all being in the same country. And they they made provinces, I guess they're kind of like states like we have here. And the provinces were um, Galilee. Next slide, please, Melanie. Thank you. Uh, you can see the provinces in big letters. There was in, in the very southern part was the province of Judea, and that was over by what we now call the Dead Sea. And then up in the middle of the region was Samaria, and then finally the top of the region was Galilee. And there were other provinces on the other side, but this is just on the western side of the Jordan River. So you had these three provinces. Galilee and Judea were Jews, and in the middle, sandwiched between them, were the people of Samaria. And that's kind of where it was in the Roman Empire and where things were, how they lay when um, Jesus was uh, living and roaming on the earth um, in his ministry. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And, you know, they would often be crossing back and forth. I mean, people from Galilee came down to Jerusalem on a regular basis to uh, worship at festivals and feasts and things like that. Well, some Jews felt so strongly about the people of Samaria that they would actually come up from Jerusalem, cross over the Jordan River above the Dead Sea, and go up through Perea and Decapolis, and then go back over when they got to Galilee. It actually would cost them, a th- ex- it was usually a three-day journey, it would cost them an extra three days to do that. But that's, not all Jews did that, but there were some that would because the feeling was so strong against Samaria. Um, just to give you an idea of what, Uh, Jews would have thought of a Samaritan woman. Um, There's a writing that happened in the first century, or was done in the first century, that declares Samaritan woman menstruants from their cradle perpetually in a state of ceremonial uncleanliness. That was how great their disdain was. So you can understand why Jesus startled the woman by speaking to her, him being a Jew. Um, now, what did the Samaritans believe? Well, they had dropped all the polytheism that had been going on at the time when they were conquered by Assyria, and they did worship one God alone. Um, they, but here's the big difference. They only accepted as God's word the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that was it. Everything else was not the word of God. So that was a huge difference between them and the Jews who had the whole Old Testament at the time um, that Jesus was there. The other thing that was really, so they had a very limited understanding of the Messiah because there's not a whole lot of prophecy that goes on about Jesus in those first five books. There's some, 
but there's not a lot. Most of our specifics we get from the prophecies of Christ are in the Psalms and then, of course, the prophets at the back of the Old Testament. Now, the Jews held Jerusalem to be the holy ground. That's where the temple was. That's where you came to worship. That was very important to the Jews. But the Samaritans, being rejected from the temple back when they they were rebuilding it and all, they decided that the holy ground was not Jerusalem after all, but it was on this mountain called Mount Gerizim. And this is a picture. There's two mountains that are side by side. Uh, Mount Gerizim would be on your right. Um, Sychar, wait. Garrison Ebal is on the left. And if those names sound familiar to you, it's when Moses came into the promised land and he had the people, uh, and when they had conquered the promised land, the people gathered on one side of the mountain and then the other. And then Mount Garrison was the, they would shout blessings out and then the people would uh, echo back from Ebal, curses from God. And just, you know, that, that whole, it was kind of a recitation kind of thing that went on. Now the Samaritans decided that Mount Garrison, being the mountain of blessing, that would be their um, thing that they would, um, that, that would be their holy place. And so they built a temple there. It was destroyed during the time of the Maccabees by the Jews. Um, but they still continued in Jesus' day to, to worship on that mountain. They would offer sacrifices there, and they had other religious rites, some of them pretty superstitious. But um, that was their holy place. And the Jews really didn't like that. So Jesus surprises the Samaritan woman. Here she is, very different from him in so many ways, but he speaks with her. But then he makes an offer that baffles her even more. We're going to go on to the next part of the story. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, this water, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What was Jesus offering her here? What would the term living water have meant to somebody in the first century? Well, there's two ways she could have taken it. The first is a literal meaning. There's two sources of water that you can get in Israel. The first is from standing water, like a well or a cistern or a pond. Now, remember, this was a very arid region, very dry, and water would quickly evaporate. And, of course, when water evaporates, it leaves behind any minerals or sediments or anything um, behind in the pond or cistern or wherever it is. So stagnant water might be very alkaline or contaminated with algae or parasites or whatever. The second source, of course, was running water from a stream or a river or a spring. And of course, that would be a whole lot more desirable. Any of us would drink from that happily, tumbling over rocks. It was fresh and clean. So those were the two physical kinds of water that were available. And what Jesus was talking about was number two. But there's a second meaning that she could have taken from from him, and that is a metaphorical meaning, a spiritual meaning to living water. Because in the Bible, God calls himself the spring of living water in Jeremiah 2.13, and then later in 7.13, the fountain of living water. So he calls himself that. 
In Ezekiel 47, God describes a river that he's going to put into the promised land at the time when uh, the Lord comes down to rule the earth. Um, and he's called, he's called a river that will flow through the land, and wherever it flows, there will be life. So again, metaphorically speaking, water and life. Joel 2.28, God promised the day when he would pour out my spirit. Again, that pouring is a metaphor, um, just kind of thinking of that fluid um, water that we're talking about. And even in Revelation, it says that the lamb will lead the redeemed to springs of living water. And it's, it talking, it's talking about the healing, eternal um, life and healing that that living water is going to bring. You know, the Psalms expresses our need for God like a thirst that can't be quenched with anything but him. Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. So the, really the idea of what the living water of God is offering is God himself. Later in John 7, Jesus told people celebrating at the Feast of Tabernacles, where water played a part in that, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What was Jesus offering the woman? He was offering her a drink from living waters, God himself. He was offering her a relationship with God, the God of the universe, and by believing, she would receive eternal life. So how does she respond? Well, we're going to read on. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not thirst or come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you've said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now, this is the part of the passage that really stymied me a little bit when I first started studying it. I wrote a chapter of this in my book. Um, Why does he seems like he's got her. She's interested in getting this living water. And then he zings her with the five husband thing. What the heck was he doing? I had to really think through that. Um, She took the bait. Why is he slamming her? Well, now we don't know the specifics of this woman's past other than what Jesus has just said and revealed here. Um, So what does history tell us about women and divorce and all that kind of thing that might shed a little light to it? Could she have been just plain unlucky, widowed five times? Um, In the first century, the average life expectancy, if you should live past the age of 10, was 38 to 50 years old. Not too long. So women were frequently widowed and remarried. So it's not uncommon in ancient history, um, in in, in the writings, to see people who lose two spouses in their lifetime. But in the ancient text, there's not one other example of a woman who's been widowed five times and remarried. And the other thing we need to add to that is divorce initiated by a woman was extremely rare because women didn't have that kind of legal right. But the law of Moses allowed a man to divorce his wife should she be found in some indecency. Now, by the time they got to the first century, that indecency could be burning this guy's toast in the morning, but um, that they were allowed to divorce for things like that. So 
it's likely, I think, that she'd been abandoned, divorced by some of her previous husbands. Well, was that a result of a gross mistreatment or maybe a result of her unmarried un- or married unfaithfulness? We don't know. But the fact that she was living with someone at the time and not married kind of gives us a little indication of maybe a darker moral side. Maybe she was a concubine. Maybe she was a second wife of someone who was already married but hadn't bothered to um, make it official. We don't know. But whatever her circumstances, whether she was a victim or a sinner or some combination of both, her long list of failed relationships would be baggage that she was going to be carrying on to any relationship that she had. So first, Jesus endeavors to show her the extent of her thirst. And he's doing that by showing relationship after relationship, searching for one that would fill some need that she had. It's what Jesus did. When he would get together with people, he would expose their hardest, deepest sin, uh, their hopelessness, their guilt, their despair, their need. Her need reminds me a little bit of an actress that you may remember, Elizabeth Taylor. Now, Elizabeth Taylor was beautiful. She's a wonderful actress. Um, She just uh, exuded confidence and beauty in, in all of her movies. She was awesome. But she also had very large appetites, and one of them was for men. And over the years, she would become famous not so much for her acting, although she was pretty famous for that, but for all of the husbands that she had. Elizabeth Taylor was married eight times to seven different men. She married Richard Burton twice. Uh, she started off with um, Nick Hilton, the heir to, and these weren't just guys. These were like famous rich guys that she kept marrying. Um, Nick Hilton was the heir to the Hilton Hotel uh, Empire. She married two actors, including her good friend, Debbie Reynolds' husband, whom she had an affair with while she and uh, Eddie Fisher were still married, a movie producer and um, a construction worker that she met at Betty Ford, and then finally a senator, um, Virginia's uh, John Warner. So she has quite a list of men there. She was a woman who had a need, a thirst, a hunger for something, and she couldn't get it filled, but she was never satisfied. Uh, When one man failed to ease the thirst, she moved on to another. And most of her marriages lasted less than five years. Throughout her life, she noted that people would remark that she was blessed with everything. Anything a woman could want, she had. And this is how she would respond. I've got one answer, she said. I haven't had tomorrow. Always seeking. Never satisfied. Well, I think our Samaritan woman had the same kind of an aching need. Her relationships, every one of them had failed her. But Jesus was offering a solution to the problem. The living water that he was offering her would rush down to her deepest, most innermost, darkest parts and cleanse her with its flow. And the grace that he offered was going to cover it all, the good, the bad, the ugly. God knew about it. He loved her regardless. There would be no more dark secrets to fester within her. And so the conversation goes on. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Oh, I ought to say at this point, Jesus has now convinced her that he is a prophet. Why? Because he just told her about her life, and he was a total stranger. 
So now she says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, probably points right to Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He's called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, there's really two different messiahs that were being watched for in Jesus' day. The Jews had expectations of um, a messiah. They wanted the messiah to come, and they got all of their ideas from different passages in the Old Testament uh, who would liberate them from their oppressors, lead them into self-rule, and restore the kingdom of Israel to its glory. That's what they were looking for. The Samaritans had a different take on who the Messiah was going to be because, like we said earlier, the only writings they accepted as the word of God was the first five books of the Bible. Um, Up until Deuteronomy, when the nation was about to enter the promised land is what that covers. So not a lot had been prophesied about the uh, Messiah in those books. There was a mention of one coming to bless the nations, talking to Abraham and his promises, but nothing so very specific about what was going to come later. The most specific thing is in Deuteronomy 18, 18. And it said this, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, he's talking to Moses here, and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them. They were looking for that prophet, that one that was going to be greater than Moses, who would teach them all things, not so much a liberator. So the fact that Jesus was able to tell a total stranger such details about their life was confirmation about his identity as a prophet. And it said in Deuteronomy 18.22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. So when Jesus tells her things that he could not have known other than it coming from God, he is confirming for her that's exactly who he is. But she's still a little concerned because he is, after all, a Jew. And was the Jewish prophet supposed to be coming to her? So she starts to talk about Mount Gerizim. Well, isn't that a big conflict? You know, you're, you're all worried about Jerusalem. Our thing is Mount Gerizim. But Jesus waves it aside as inconsequential where you worship. Why? Because she's talking about external things, where you go, physical places. And the days for that kind of worship were coming to an end. He was ushering it in himself. God wanted more from his people. He wanted a more intimate relationship. And so he would be coming not to inhabit a temple, but to inhabit the lives of the people who believed permanently. The Holy Spirit would enter, and he was a seal, a guarantee of salvation, and a guarantee of that inheritance that was about to come. So the temple was not his house any longer. The temple of God would be in the hearts of his people. 
That idea is echoed in several writings. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul tells them, Do you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Peter 2, 5, he tells us, uh, Peter tells us, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the temple is no longer going to be a building or a site. The temple is going to be the hearts of God's people. The church is now the temple. So it's going to no longer be an issue where you went to worship. So finally, she asks him straight out, yes or no, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, I am. Now, I know it doesn't translate quite like that, but there's this Greek phrase, I am, ego ami. And when Jesus says it, it's a powerful thing. It's how God described himself to Moses at the burning bush. Who do I say send me when he's going back to the people, the Hebrews in slavery in Egypt? And and God tells him, tell them, I am sent you. And in that phrase, ego ami, that was just exactly Uh, showed exactly who uh, God was. Um, Another time that really showed some power was when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be arrested, and they ask him if he's Jesus. And he says, I am. Ego ami. And when he says it, the soldiers fall backward and fall to the ground. Isn't that the coolest thing? Every time I read that, I get goosebumps. Well, can you imagine having Jesus Christ look you straight in the eye and say, I am. At least she got goosebumps, if not a chill up and down her spine. And she knew. To hear Jesus speak those words, we can only imagine. But what he had said and what he had told her was enough. She believed At this point, the disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city, and they were coming to him, and there's more things that happened, but many of the Samaritans did believe in him through her testimony. So not only did she believe at that moment, But she started bearing fruit right away. Pretty amazing. So why is this story in the Bible? What can we take this story from this story and um, apply to our lives today? Well, like the Samaritan woman, every single one of us has that same kind of spiritual thirst that she had at that well 2,000 years ago. Because it's part of the human condition. We all struggle with discontent. We all struggle with wanting something more, looking for that that thing that's going to satisfy us and make us happy, and it's always just out of reach. Isn't it true? It's true for me, and I'm I'm sure it's true for most of you, if not all. And the thing is, there's only one kind of water that can fill the need, but too often we look to other sources. That's what the people of Israel had done earlier on in the Old Testament. This is what Jeremiah tells that God has said. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold hold water. 
We're thirsty, all right. But sometimes we look to get rid of that thirst in wrong places. Steve and I took a trip out to Colorado not too long ago in the fall. And in getting ready to go to get in the mood for Colorado, I decided to read the book Centennial. It's by James Mishner. It's about this thick. It took me forever to get through. As a matter of fact, I just finished it like, I don't know, last week. <laughs> I started in October. But anyway, it's a story of this, the whole development of the, uh, the Denver area. And, um, you know, he starts with the dinosaurs and moves forward. And so, um, but anyway, so you can see why it's so long. And it's, it's, it's in sections. And one of the sections of the book is about these cowboys doing a cattle drive. It's set in uh, 1867, and this company, a British-owned company, had acquired about a million acres of prairie in the state of Colorado and, and partially Wyoming. So they hired a group of cowboys to go down to Texas and capture wild longhorns that were just roaming the land. They were wild animals. And get a herd of several thousand together, brand them, and then drive them from Texas up into Colorado up into their grazing lands where they would reproduce and get fattened up and get sold for a huge profit. Of course, you know, when you don't pay anything, I guess you can really make a profit there. But anyway, so that's what they decided to do. So they they hired these uh, cowboys. But there was a problem. Not as easy as it sounds, although I'm not sure how easy driving several thousand cattle sounds to you, but there were a lot of dangers along the trail. The first was the threat of Indians who were at that point starting to starve because the buffalo had pretty much been wiped out. And so they would raid the uh, cattle drives and take a whole lot of cows with them. Um, Outlaws would rob them blind as well. And then the farmers across Kansas, which they would have to cross to go north, um, were very um, angry at, at, remember the Oklahoma song, the farmer and the cowboys should be friends. (laughs) Well, they weren't back then. And so the the, uh, farmers felt that cattle spread diseases and ruined the land, and so they were very hostile toward cattle drives going north. So this group of cowboys down in Texas comes up with Plan B. They would head first um, south, even though they were going north. They would go directly across the desert, which was about a 90-mile stretch, without one drop of water available to them. The journey would take several days, and so they watered them up as best they could as they were headed out toward that very arid region. Well, the journey took several days. 90 miles is going to take a while to to go. And the cattle, by the time they got to the end, the way Missioner described it was mad with thirst. You can imagine crossing several days. you're, You're walking across the desert to get to somewhere and not one drop of water available to you. The buzzards were in the sky waiting for the cows to drop, which they were dropping. Um, And so they had that to look forward to. (laughs) Well, as they went through that final pass that brought them out of the desert and into a place with water, ironically, that was the most dangerous part of the journey because the problem was as they got through the pass to the north, there was a reserve of water there, but it was extremely alkaline bad water. And if the cows drank it, they would die. Now to the south, there was fresh water, but it was a little further than the north. Well, there was this old bull that had led the whole herd the entire journey going west. And he, as they went through the pass, smelled water. But he smelled the water in the north. 
And so he turned and started leading the entire herd toward this alkaline water. Well, they had to stop him. And so the cowboys are getting in the way, and they've got their horses and everything, and he is running down cowboys and horses because he's got one thing on his mind. He needs that water. And they ended up, it's a very sad story, but they ended up having to shoot that bull, and then they were able to turn the herd around and get them down to the good water and save the herd. It's a, it's a fascinating, heartbreaking story. And, um, but here's the thing. If they had gone to the wrong kind of water, it was not only going to help them save their lives, it was going to kill them. Bad water. When we feel that nagging sense of discontent, that thirst, what's our natural inclination? Well, for me, maybe for you, I often head toward the north. (laughs) I often head to the bad water. We head to the wrong kind of water. Sometimes try to get that feeling off, that discontent feeling, a lot of times I will go spend money. That's one of my favorite things. As a matter of fact, I've told my husband, I'm pretty sure it's my spiritual gift. But, you know, we'll go shopping, fill our cart with useless purchases uh, that we don't want and don't have anywhere to put when we get home. But we get that buyer's high, so it fills that need a little bit. Maybe you do it by social activity, filling up your social calendar so you don't have a chance to sit home and think. (laughs) Um, Internet is a great source of people trying to fill that that void, that emptiness. And some people even resort to pornography and things of that nature. Or maybe people drink or do drugs um, to try to forget that discontent. Just like Israel did when Jeremiah spoke. We go after fixes of our own making, but they're not what's going to fill us. They're like broken cisterns. And they're unable to supply what we really need to satisfy that thirst. So what's the answer? Well, Paul gives it to us, and it's in Philippians. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Get ready. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In that same letter earlier, he wrote, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's greatest passion, his focus, every interest, every waking thought was about Jesus Christ. None of those difficult circumstances he went through, and boy, did he go through them. His beatings, he was stoned a couple of times, travel hardships, shipwrecks, um, imprisonments, ever could really touch him because his knowledge of God fueled him onward and he was content in the midst of it all. It's what he prayed for the Ephesians. He prayed that they would know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of of God. What fills us up? The knowledge, the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. When we get the love of Christ, when we know who he is, the greater we know him, the greater our sense of satisfaction is going to be. The only thing that's going to relieve that unquenchable thirst is God himself. Everything else we try is at most a temporary cure, if not destructive.
So rather than focusing on our circumstances and the things that we think that are lacking in our lives, we need to set our focus on the circumstance maker. Spend time investing in our relationship with the living God because the better we know him, the more we love him, and the circumstances that seem so lacking start to fade into the background because we're not going to count on those anymore for our contentment. We're going to rest in Christ alone. It really is the answer. I want to finish with one small detail I noticed at the end of the story. In her haste to share the living water that she had just received, the Samaritan woman leaves her water jug behind. She abandons that physical, external thing, water, for the sake of what she's been given, her spiritual water, the water, the living water. She abandoned what she could never, that would never, ever permanently satisfy her for what filled her up and made her whole. And we need to follow her example. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this conversation. Thank you that you are the living water. Thank you that you do satisfy our thirst. You supply our salvation. You fill us up. Help us, God, to pursue after you. Learn more about you. Understand your love better and better so that that satisfaction can be ours. We just thank you for what's available to us. We thank you for uh, what you want to do in our lives. And we just ask your help to continue on this journey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Hope Chapel's podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a small expression of the much larger body of Christ that spans across the world. We're a group of believers helping each other on our lifelong journeys to become like Jesus. While we have a variety of distinctives that make us a unique church, our main desire is to be God's church, to love Him, follow Him, to learn from Him, to let Him lead us and change our lives. We are His disciples, and He is our rabbi. Join us in the story that God is writing called... New Hope Chapel. To learn more about our church, visit us at newhopechapel.org or check us out on Facebook slash New Hope Chapel MD. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and iTunes. Music kindly provided by the least of these. Thanks again for listening and God bless.